Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. We are in our uh, summer-long series through the book of Colossians. And don't worry if you've not been here and you feel like, oh, I'm a little out of it. We'll get you kind of caught up to speed, or you could just read the book of Colossians if you get bored. That's what we're going to be talking about. But it's, it's the book of Colossians is this, this amazing thing because there's these, these passages that are just these, these soaring heights of rhetoric where you can just tell as Paul's writing this down or dictating this to the person who's writing it down, you can tell that he's like pacing the room and he's just talking about how Jesus is the image of the invisible God, how he's the firstborn over all creation, and how, how the fullness of deity dwells in him. And you can just tell it comes through the ink on the page that Paul is passionate about this. He's excited about this. And it's amazing, it's moving, it's motivating. And then you get to the passage we're reading today. And it's like a record scratch. Like, where did that come from? What is going on? Why is he talking about what he's talking about? Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Colossians 2, 16, therefore, and I want us to pause just for a minute, the old cliche that I grew up hearing in every sermon was, hey, what is that therefore? Oh, I wondered if you guys knew it or not. You left me hanging there for just a minute. What is that therefore, therefore? And uh, we, so we need to talk about that. Therefore, let's talk about the therefore just for a minute. You know, the life administration stuff that you have to do, it's not your job. It's not the what you get paid for, but it's stuff you have to do. It's like, you know, filing taxes or navigating health insurance or trying to renew your license or get a passport. You know what I'm talking about? And it's hard. It's not easy stuff. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. You don't want to do it. It's frustrating. Uh, it's, it's tough. It's like a full-time job. It's like another full-time job. Several years ago, I had a gym membership that I wanted to cancel. I know, shocking, right? That I wanted to cancel uh, because they had a basketball court and they shut the basketball court down and that, that's really all I used. And so I thought, no problem. I walk to the place where you sign up for the gym membership and I say, I would like to cancel my gym membership. And they said, well, you can't do that here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is the gym. You're the person that signed me up. Why can't I cancel? And they said, I'm not making any of this up. They said, no, you have to fax F-A-X, a cancellation request to our headquarters. Fax! Who has a fax machine? Where do you get a fax machine? And I'm like, okay, well, you know, how, what, how do I do that? And so I'm working through that, finding a place with a fax machine. And, and all you're doing is getting a cancellation request, which then you have to fill out. So you have to receive a fax. I had never received a fax in my entire life. And to cancel my gym membership, to stop paying, you know, 20 bucks a month or whatever, I have to do this. And so I'm like, okay, the headquarters is in Appleton, Wisconsin. I mean, it probably at some point just would have been easier to drive there and say, I would like to cancel. And they probably would have said, no, you can't do that. You have to have a fax machine. So, you know, I hire the carrier pigeon and send the Morse code thing in, the cancellation notice. And then they're like, okay, we'll get back to you in six to nine business months. And you're just like, this is crazy. And the craziest thing about it is, and this isn't really part of anything, but the craziest thing about it is, is I canceled my gym membership and 
Corrine also canceled her gym membership, and we found out that we were still being charged months later, maybe even a year later, and we went back in and we said, what is going on? And they said, your son, who at the time was probably six years old, still has a gym membership. And you're like, well, how does he have a gym membership? We just brought him and put him in the kids club. And they said, you never canceled the kids club portion of the gym membership. But he can't come unless we're here. Can we just bring him and put him in the thing and then we go out to lunch or something like that? Can we do that? They said no. Paul is saying in this passage, when he talks about the therefore, Paul is saying that you have a monthly subscription to sin. That your life has been, you've signed on the dotted line and you have a contractual obligation. Paul uses the word, you are a slave to sin, he talks about. He says, that was your circumstance. That was your life. You had this monthly subscription and you can't get out of it. There's no way to get out of it. There's nothing that you can do. You were locked into a lifetime contract. It's high interest balloon payments of guilt and shame. But he said just a few verses before what we read here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Um, I want you to notice this. this is so good. It says, he forgave us all our sins. I did not grow up believing that that verse was true or real. I grew up maybe thinking that God had forgiven some of my past sins unless they were super bad. And then I just felt guilty about them all the time. But he said, no, he forgave us all our sins. And that's, we, we can't mess around with the words of God. I know some of you are sitting there thinking like, wow, I don't know about all my future sins. What if I commit a sin this afternoon? Did you forget that too? Yes, he forgave you all your sins. He went into that sin gym and canceled the contract for you. It's over. It's done. You don't have an obligation to that anymore is what he's saying. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus comes along and he just, he ends the insanity. He cuts through that spiritual bureaucracy, that, that red tape that you just lay in bed and you think about, but what about that sin? What about this other thing? Well, what about, what about, and Jesus said, it's done. It's over. I've finished it. That is such good news. And the, the truth of the matter is, I think that we wander into church or we just, actually, we wander around life with these vestiges of sin and shame. And every once in a while, we just need someone to take a machete to that guilt and remind us of the truth, remind us of this truth of scripture. And that is what Paul is doing. It is done. It is over. And you guys are a lot less excited about that than I hoped you'd be. Because, and this is why you're less excited about it, because some of you are like, well, you know, honestly, I could be doing better. I, I could, I, I do still have some sin stuff I'd like to work out. I got some habits that I don't think are great. And that is all true. That is all true. There's this part of you, this part of you that still is holding on and you're still living by the obligations of that contract that has been ended. There's part of us that do that and it's so hard. So in Christ, we've been completely freed from sin and shame. You know how people used to uh, burn the mortgage? You remember that? I don't think they do that anymore. I don't know if anybody stays in their home for 30 years anymore. But they used to burn, you used to burn that little piece of paper that said this is paid in full. And there should be a party. It should be a celebration. It should be just this wonderful thing. And I think that that's true for our, for our spiritual lives as well. Every once in a while, we should just be like, it's amazing. It's over. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. But it's not uncommon on the other side of salvation to wrestle with spiritual insecurity. And I don't know if this is you or me or all of us, 
But I think a lot of us have spiritual uncertainty and insecurity. In the back of our minds, we're thinking, well, but what if? What's going on? And does God, does God really love me? I mean, if he really knows me, does he really love me? And shouldn't I be further along in my faith? Why don't I feel God? Why, does, why doesn't it seem like my prayers are heard or answered? Uh, why do other people seem to get it and I don't get it? Is there something that I could do to be sure? Is there something else I'm supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And into that uncertainty is this opportunity for falsehood and lies. Because that uncertainty in your heart is looking for answers and there's prime opportunity for bad ideas to come in and sink deeply and tell you, hey, if you really want to be sure, here's a list of things that you could do. If you really want to be certain, if you really want to know that God's in your life, well, here's a checklist. Here's a, here's a standard by which you could measure yourself if you really want to be sure. But remember, Paul's already said he has forgiven everything. And so when those bad ideas come in, we are wrestling with them and we've got to clear them out. These questions are devastating because there's a hint of truth, right? We could be doing more. We could be doing more. We could be sinning less, right? <laughs> we could be trying harder. There's all kinds of things that we could be doing better. I saw a dramatic rescue video this week, and it's an old one, and I, I had been aware of it, but I didn't, uh, I didn't know, I, I hadn't thought about the story much, but I watched this video probably like 12 times. It was, it's so fascinating, and what's going on is it's this construction project of an apartment in Houston. It's a five-story construction building, a five-story apartment building, and uh, the top of it, uh, the construction foreman hears that there's a fire that's broken out on the top floor. And at first, he's like, oh, a little fire. So he gets up, and he runs, uh, runs up to try to put this thing out with a, little, with a little fire hydrant extinguisher. And by the time he gets up there, he realizes it's a lot bigger than he thought. And by the time he's up there and he's inspected it, the fire's kind of burned around him and started to engulf the stairs. So he has no exit now. And it's just getting worse and worse. Across the street, there's an office complex, and the people are watching from the window this whole thing unfold, and they start to video it. And the construction foreman has come out to the balcony, an unfinished balcony. It's just a platform, no sides. And he's standing there watching everything behind him be engulfed in flames, and he has nowhere to go. And the people across the street watching this through the window are starting to freak out. They're like, what? what's going to happen? And there's a fire truck on the way, and you can see the, the ladder of the fire truck, and you can see his platform, and you can see the flames, and you can tell he is not going to make it by the time that thing finally lowers itself to where he is. And so he has to do something drastic. He lowers himself over the edge of the balcony and hangs there for a minute and swings and then drops to the fourth story below. This is already intense and terrifying. I thought briefly about showing you the video and I thought, no, somebody's going to pass out from fear because it's so intense. And now he's on the fourth floor of the balcony. The fire's not consumed the fourth floor yet, but it's coming. This thing is spreading so fast. And that ladder truck with the fire, firefighters on it, with the, with the safety, with the rescues on it, it's just moving so slow. And he's sitting there on the edge of the balcony. And that thing finally gets close enough where he could move his weight from the balcony to the ladder truck. And you see him in this video. And I have no idea what he's thinking. But you see him in this video as he's sitting on the edge of the balcony. You see him pause. 
And everybody across the street of the apartment or the office complex is saying, what are you doing? Jump, man, you have no time. And you see him pause and you see him look up at the fifth floor where the fire was. And it's almost as if he's thinking, hmm, am I better off jumping for it and moving all my weight from the balcony to the ladder truck? Or is there another option? I'm, I'm okay for the minute right here. Is this good? And this is a really blurry video taken off of YouTube, but you can see him in the yellow vest. You can see the fire raging up there, and you can see the firefighter on the ladder truck. You see all that, and you can just see him. You can't quite tell from this picture, from this still uh, shot, but he's looking up at the fire. And I just imagine in this split second that he's having, he's, he's hesitating, he's pausing, and the people are like, you've got to jump. Of course, he can't hear them. And it's about, I counted, it's about 20 seconds from when that ladder is close enough for him to leave the balcony and go to the ladder before he finally does. And there's just a minute there where he's got his hands on his knees and he's looking. And I just wonder if he's thinking, hmm, should I just hedge my bets and stay here on the balcony? Is there a way? Is there an avenue of escape here or do I have to jump for it? and go on the ladder. And then he does, and the room that is videoing it cheers. It's in, in, intense and dramatic, and the guy was totally fine. Not injured in the least. He was totally fine. He totally made it. The dilemma for most Christians isn't, do I trust Jesus, or do I not trust Jesus? The dilemma for most of us Christians is we know we've got to jump for the ladder, we know we've got to hold on to Jesus for safety, but we're just not quite sure. We're not sure that we want to shift our spiritual weight fully on Jesus. Now, I know you're thinking, of course you do. That's the only way to safety. Yes, we know that. But in the moment, we want to find ways to hold on just to a little bit of control of our salvation. Maybe I can obligate God if I read my Bible enough or pray enough or go to church enough or tell enough people about Jesus. Maybe there's a way that I, even with spiritual things, that I can control. And there's a crowd of witnesses that is shouting at you. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this. That's saying, jump! You need to get off that balcony because it's going down. And in that video, it's, it's so amazing. You feel free to watch it. He gets on the ladder and the, the driver of the ladder immediately swings the ladder and the top floor, that whole thing collapses right where they had been. I mean, they were, they were, they were milliseconds from it all being over. And you just think about that 20 seconds where he paused. And I think, Christians, what we've got to wrestle with, what we've got to wrestle with right here, some of you are on the balcony, and you're like, I think so, but I'm not sure. But maybe, I'm not sure. You've got a crowd of witnesses that saying, hey, you have to put your full weight on Jesus. Every single epistle that Paul the Apostle wrote, every single letter, he's saying the same thing in a variety of ways. Hey, Jesus is your only salvation. And they were coming along saying, well, yeah, how about Jesus and some of these other things? And he's like, no, Jesus is the only way. Well, how about Jesus and some, some false teaching? No, Jesus is the only way. It's every epistle. It all boils down to that, that Jesus is the only way. Do I trust Jesus fully? Is my faith fully on Jesus, or am I still clinging to the balcony? And that's that uncertainty. And we wrestle with it. And into the midst of that uncertainty come some bad ideas. And so Paul outlines at least three in this passage. 
And some of these are going to seem so odd and foreign. You're going to think like, I have no problem with that. Why? What does that matter to me? But I want you to think about the, what's happening beneath the surface. And I, I think that most of us wrestle with all of these things all the time. Whether or not we should shift our spiritual trust, our spiritual weight from the balcony. We see this. We get this. We understand this. But that ladder, I'm not sure. That's a little uncertain. That's a little, I don't know about that. So this is what he does. He gives three warnings, three insidious ways things kind of come into that uncertainty. And the first one he does is back at that therefore. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you, which, by the way, we love that, right? Don't let anyone judge me. I do my own thing. It's not what he's talking about. But he's just saying, don't let people come along and create layers of spiritual expectation that God has not placed on you. Don't do that. That's a bad idea because it's going to make you feel like you should stay on the balcony when you should be jumping to the ladder. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Now, some flavors of churches, by the way, verse 17 I should read too. Uh, These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality, the substance is in Christ. There are some churches, some variations of churches that teach you have to keep the Old Testament law. And if you've ever like slogged through the book of Leviticus, you're like, how in the world do they do this? Well, they don't really do it either. They just pick some of the the main ones and they try to say, you've got to do these things. And it just never really completely works. But it's not common. This is not something that we really wrestle with. Most of us aren't trying to decide, hmm, should I eat pork chops or not? Or should I keep the new moon celebration? That's not what we're wrestling with. Uh, that's not our dilemma. That's not our, that, that's not our problem. Um, when I officiate a wedding, there, you always do the rehearsal. It's usually the night before. Uh, and, you know, that's the time where people can let loose a little bit. And the, the groomsmen like to be a little silly. And people come up. To the, come, they, they don't usually dress up for the rehearsal. They usually dress down, you know, the sweatpants or whatever. And uh, the rehearsal's fun because you're just walking through everything, all the expectations, where are you supposed to stand, where, how, when are you supposed to go, what's your musical cue, all that kind of stuff, you know, and they're just trying to make sure everybody knows. And we've all been to a million weddings, and we all know exactly what we're supposed to do, so it kind of gets a little silly. But there's a, there's a point in the rehearsal where you get the, the bride and the groom, the brides come down, the grooms come down, you know, and, the, and you do the, all right, do you, do you. And I always, I always have them say, do you, yes, do you, yes. And then... I always think it's funny to put in a really lame joke right there. Right after they say, I do, I do, I say, hey, just surprise, this was the real wedding. You guys are married now, and we don't have to show up tomorrow. Now, I think it's so funny doing that. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. The, uh, the father of the groom usually appreciates it, too. He's like, that's fine with me. The guys are totally fine. Sweatpants, you bet. I love this. The bride and the mother of the bride have never once thought it was funny. (laughs) Never once. They like kind of do like a fake laugh, like, ha, 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 okay. But they've been planning for this moment for so long. It has consumed their thinking. It has consumed every waking moment. Millions of decisions have gone into this. They do not want the shadow. They do not want the rehearsal. They do not want the buildup to the real thing. They want the substance. And what Paul the Apostle is saying is some people, 
because they, they read the Bible and they're like, well, for thousands of years, this was the way it was. And, and Paul's saying, yes, those were training wheels leading to Jesus. And Jesus is here. You got the brand new 10-speed bike. It's time to take off those training wheels. The old law, the Torah, that was floaties that your dad put on you and threw you in the deep end. But you don't need them anymore. You can swim now. You don't need that. Don't cling to the shadow. You have the substance. You have the real thing in Christ. Now, I want you to think about this because this is wild to think about. You have people in the early church, in this first church, that had grown up their entire lives with all the food laws. They had never tasted a piece of bacon in their lives. They had never had a hot dog. They had never broken the Sabbath. They had never done any gardening on the Sabbath. None of it. And Paul comes along and starts. A lot of people continued keeping these expectations. But I guarantee you, there were several Hebrew Christians that at some point in their faith, they decided, you know what? The substance is Jesus. I can have a BLT. It's okay. And can you imagine what that meal was like to sit down at the table and your whole life, decades and decades, and your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had never once eaten a pork chop, and there you are, and it's there on the table. It would have been an act of faith to take a bite of that. Even though those things were fine and good, and it would have been fine to continue to do them, Paul's not saying you can't limit yourself. He's just saying don't for a second think that God is obligated to rescue you because you've limited your diet or because you've kept certain holy days. It's a little amusing to me, but sometimes we change a little minor thing at church. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we'll do like communion at the end of service. And you would think I was doing a seance on stage with the way some people react. Like, but that's, we've been doing it that way for decades. My grandpa did it that way. My great grandpa did it that way. And his grandfather and his father before him. And sometimes I think, church, I don't believe in change for change's sake. But sometimes I think we need to institute a little change for faith's sake to help us understand that our faith in Jesus isn't about these specific habits and rituals and practices, but it is in Jesus. We've moved our spiritual weight from the balcony to the ladder. And spiritual habits, rituals, they're great. They're great until guarding them becomes the object and goal of your faith. And you've seen churches do that. And you know what happens to churches where they guard the spiritual rituals and habits and practices that aren't the substance but are the shadow? They dwindle and dwindle and dwindle until they are no more because the life-giving power of Jesus is not in the shadow. It is in the substance. It's so important that Paul wants us to understand that, to know that. But he goes on. He goes on. Um, In verse 18, he says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. You're like, what? False humility, worship of angels. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen, but they're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Verses like this are so good because they remind us that we are reading someone else's mail. Worship of angels? I don't know. Should we have a confession session? I have never worshiped an angel. Anybody here? No? Or you don't want to admit it? Yeah, I don't know. It's just not a problem that we're wrestling with, but it certainly seems to be a problem in first century Colossae. 
But I wanted, to, I wanted us to think about what, what, he, what the, the underlying problem. There are these people who, they're like, yeah, Jesus is great. He's awesome. But can we jazz it up a little bit? I mean, can we, make it, can we get the enhanced version? You've just got the Jesus basic package, and we just want something a little bit more, just something a little bit more exciting. Can we just make it a little bit better? Can we, can we help the experience? Uh, sometimes Christian, have you ever heard the term humble bragging? Some of you, and even if you haven't heard the term, you're like, oh, I, I think I get what that is. Where you brag about something that's supposed to make you look humble, but it doesn't really. Anyway, sometimes Christians do a little bit of humble bragging. Not a lot, but sometimes people will say something like, I, I'm making this up. Nobody's ever said this to me, but they'll be in conversation and somehow, even though it doesn't really fit the conversation, they'll figure out how to work into the conversation like, oh man, I'm just so tired. Why are you tired? Oh, I was up at 4 a.m. doing my regular prayer time and I had been up late the night before feeding homeless people till after two and I just didn't get a lot of sleep. Anyway, I was asking, I was asking God to, to bless me because, you know, my apartment feels a little cramped and I could use a bigger place. And so I was saying, God, can, can you lead me whether or not I should quit my job because the job's not paying enough and give me a better job. And I could feel God. He spoke to me right in that moment and gave me a sense of supernatural peace that I should quit it right there. Don't even give him a two weeks notice. Don't even go back in. And yes, I should sign that lease. Can you afford the lease? No, but all things are possible with God. You know, it's like all, they weave all these things in there and you're just like, you wrestling with spiritual insecurity, like why am I not doing enough? Why am I not good enough? You hear those things and you hear them through this filter of your insecurity. And you start thinking like, well, maybe God doesn't answer my prayers because I'm not getting up at 4 a.m. to pray. God's not listening any more at 4 a.m. than he is at 10 a.m. No amens? Come on. Seriously. I thought some of you would be like, yeah, that's right. But he's not. There's sometimes it's good for you to create a spiritual habit because it's the only time in your day that you have the opportunity to focus on God, and it should be. And I think there's some of you that should get up at 4 a.m. and pray. But God's not more tuned in. The frequency doesn't work better at 4 a.m. somehow. Um, but we're wrestling with spiritual insecurity and like, why isn't God talking to me? Why don't I have a sense of peace? Why isn't God blessing me? Why am I not having these experiences that other people claim that they're having in relationship to God? I want to be very careful here. I believe firmly in the transcendent presence and experience of God among us. I believe that God works among us. I believe that we can experience that. I believe that a lot of us have tuned that out because we live in such a material world that we just don't even allow for the possibility of that. But I believe he absolutely does that. But if he's not doing that, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you or care about you or isn't working in your life. I, I, here, humble brag, alert. I, I do my prayer in the morning, and, and I'm not telling you that because I think it's better, but that's the only time I've been able to find that I have the ability to focus. And there are some mornings when I do my prayer that I experience God, and I feel his presence, and I feel his love, and I sense his answer. There are many more times where I wake up in the morning, and I don't even know what to pray and I don't feel anything and there isn't an experience or a sense or I don't have an answer I believe God does but that experience of God is a gift not a guarantee and certainly not a guarantee that we can manipulate certainly not there are Sundays when I feel like God is in the room 
I just feel like his presence is here. And it's just, you feel like you're in holy space. And there are other Sundays where everybody turned their cell phone volume up to full and all of them go off or something crazy happens. And I'm like, God, why didn't you stop that? Why didn't you? Or the songs are flat or it doesn't work or everybody's gone for the weekend and it just doesn't feel like God is there. The experience of God is a gift, not a guarantee, and certainly not a guarantee we can manage. Are we placing our faith on the balcony of the experience of God, or we have just given into the trust, full trust? Third thing he says, third thing he says, number three, this is verse 20. He says, since you died with Christ, this is one of the weird ones, by the way. Not that the other two haven't, but this is the third thing. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit it to its rules? You can see some exasperation in Paul's tone. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are the rules of the world. Why do you submit to those? These rules, which all have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack, this is nuts, folks, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I just want you to know, Bruce referenced this last week in his sermon, and I'm going to say the same thing that Bruce did, and Bruce is a really smart guy, and so if you think what I'm about to say is wrong, he was wrong first, okay? (laughs) But I, I think Bruce and I agree And I think this is right, but this is crazy. Because if you have wrestled, have you ever wrestled? I shouldn't say have you. I hope you have. Have you wrestled with temptation and tried to stop doing something you know you shouldn't be doing? It could be anything. It feels like the solution to temptation is more rigid rules and structures. It feels like you build more rules around that, you'll avoid the temptation. That feels right. It almost feels wrong for me to say, well, that's not what Paul is saying here. At the risk of oversimplifying all of this, it seems like these spiritual Jesus communities were trying to protect an ideal, and in so doing, they started to build barriers around that ideal, and then those barriers became the expectation by which they judged the entire church. If you broke that expectation, not the ideal, but the expectation around the ideal, then you were subject to judgment by the community. I've been to some churches that are kind of like that. Where they're trying to preserve something good, but they've built up rules around it. Let me give you an example. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. I don't know. I'll let you judge. I have a friend who has two sons. And these sons are close enough in age that they're super competitive. They compete about everything. Everything. The the portions of the ice cream, the brownies, who sits where and what, who's tall, everything. Everything. And one of the things they compete about, for some reason, God has implanted in the heart of every child that sitting shotgun is the highest privilege that can be bestowed upon a child. And so to sit in the front seat next to mom or dad. And so every time they got out to the car, there was this battle for shotgun. There was this battle to see who could get in the front seat. And so first, they would just argue about it. And dad said, stop arguing. No more arguing. That's a rule. No arguing. And so the boys knew that they couldn't argue, so they began to race to the front seat. Every time it was time to go somewhere, they didn't argue, but they ran. And finally, and you know, somebody would trip and fall and crash headlong into something. And so dad was like, no running to the front seat. No arguing, no running. And so they didn't argue, they didn't run. They'd both walk very fast and stiffly to the front seat, and they would duke it 
out at the passenger door of the car to see who could, who could get in that front seat first. And they would fight. And one day, dad's in the front seat of the car, the sedan, the family sedan that they drove, and one brother shuts his brother's head in the door, right? He's fine. He's fine. You guys seem really worried. Poor guy in the balcony, you guys are like, eh, no big deal. But this kid getting his head shut in the door. Seriously. He's fine. A little brain damage, but he's okay. And dad was like, that's enough. No, none of you can ever sit in the front seat again. And so rule upon rule upon rule. Well, not less than two hours after he had made that rule. He was very firm about that rule. They normally drove the family sedan, but dad needed to take them to the, the, you know, the, the Home Depot or whatever, and he was driving his little pickup truck. And the boys quietly walked very quickly out, not fighting each other, and, and dad realized that he had created a rule that now his boys could not ride in the pickup truck with him because he said, you cannot ride in the front seat, and the pickup truck only had the front seat. And he had to rescind the rule because here's the problem with those rules, all of those rules. What dad wanted was his, the, the hearts of his son to care about one another. And you cannot create enough rules to transform someone's heart. You cannot do it. You can try, and some of you parents have tried, but it will not change their heart. And God knows that. He knows that, that our hearts aren't transformed by more structure. Um, maybe rules, and by the way, let me say this, because some of you are like, oh, so it's just a free-for-all. I can just do whatever I want. No. Rules can provide some guardrails and structure in your life, but it doesn't transform your heart. It doesn't transform your heart. Paul's addressing the same problem he has all along here. I, I think there are some Christians whose faith is in the rules that they keep. And they're like, God, you have to honor and bless me because I've kept all the rules. And God's like, it's never been about that. It's always, always been about Jesus. Can I, this last little piece, can I talk about this? We'll, we'll be quick. This last little piece, restraining sensual indulgence. Rules lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I did... I did a little research this week because I was like, I'm just curious, just curious about this. <clears throat> the last data that there is for this, um, this is about pornography. Some of you are going to get a little uncomfortable. In 2022, nine of the top ten countries in the world with the highest rates of pornography consumption, one through nine, were all countries in a part of the world where there is incredibly rigid social structures around how men and women interact in public together. Um, in fact, in the number one country that has the highest pornography consumption rates, it's, not only is it illegal, it's illegal in all nine of the ten countries, not only is it illegal, but it's punishable by jail. And the government has blocked over 800,000 websites, and yet the Men of that country, primarily men, although I know it's a struggle for women as well, the men of that country have found ways to consume more pornography than any other country in the world. Why? Because you cannot create enough structure to transform the human heart. You know who can transform our hearts? Jesus. 
And this is why we have to leave the balcony and put all of our faith and cling to Jesus because he's the only one that can do it. Parents, you're going to hear me saying, well, I just have to cast off all restraint and let my kids do whatever they want. No, no, you have to be a parent because your kids are dumb and they're going to kill themselves. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying you cannot transform their hearts with enough rules. You have to work with God to transform their hearts and make them into people that want to follow after Jesus. To follow after Jesus. Spiritual rules can be helpful unless keeping them becomes the key to our faith. So much more we could talk about. Um, I could have wrapped up this whole sermon. Some of you are like, we spent 36 minutes here and you could have just said it in one sentence. I could, but I didn't want to. (laughs) Spent a lot of time working on this. One thing, Jesus is our only hope for rescue. He's our only hope. Well, Patrick, I, I, I've tried really, really hard to, to build my life and do these things, and I really hope that God honors that. No, it doesn't matter. Jesus is your only hope for rescue. He's your only hope. That's all, that's all the Apostle Paul is trying to say in the book of Colossians, and he's just saying it over and over and over again. In fact, we titled the series, if you want to go to the next slide, we titled the series that Christ is all. Christ is all. I I thought about retitling it in the middle because we're going to do 10 weeks of this. Jesus is everything. And that's true. It sounds so cliche, but it's true. It's true, church. That's all it's ever been for the last 2,000 years. It's been Jesus is everything. And do we want to leave the balcony of our own construction, of our, of our, our, uh, of our humanism, of our material world, of our, of our rules and structures and hold tightly to Jesus? Or do we just want to hang on to that balcony and see how things work out for us? That's the question. That's the question. And that's why I think, I've been thinking about this a lot, I think about what makes a good church. I mean, song service, yeah, that's awesome. Hopefully preaching, that's a big deal. You know, having wonderful people who love one another. But what makes a good church is Jesus. It's just Jesus. Over and over and over again. A good church is pointing constantly back to Jesus. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up on stage. We're going to sing a song in closing together. And we're just going to pray. That we honor God through our dedication, our focus, our, our, our clinging to Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and the fact that he is our only hope for rescue. Let's stand together as we sing.